Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Chinese water resource officials say the South to North Water Transfer Project has significantly relieved the water crisis for the parched northern part of the country. The established routes now run a total of nearly 3,000 kilometers, crossing hundreds of rivers, over 50 railways, and nearly 2,000 roads. The targeted northern part holds one third of the country's population, economic volume, and grain output. It's a so-called thirsty area, but it's Development is essential for the country. The project is a strategic choice. But the water doesn't come easy. 435,000 people have been relocated. 3,500 polluting companies have also been shut down. But the country will continue to build it to be the world's largest water network, servicing 500 million people. In this episode, moving water on a massive scale in China. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. China, particularly the north of the country, has long had to contend with uncertain water supplies. Chinese civilization was established along the Yellow River, and for millennia, the surrounding basin was the centre of Chinese politics, economy, and culture. Yet, the Mother River of China is also known as China's sorrow, for the 1.6 billion tons of silt washing down each year. And historically, causing flooding and massive loss of life. More recently, increased demands from a growing population, industry, and agriculture, along with the effects of global warming, are taking their toll on the river flows. China's never been shy about tackling its big problems with big projects, and has already applied its considerable engineering skills to collecting and moving water on an unprecedented scale. Many of us have heard of the gigantic Three Gorges Dam project, with its mix of supply benefits and social and environmental costs. But there's another grand ambition around water, with ongoing efforts to move fresh water from the Yangtze River in the south of the country to the parched north. A massive canal system, the South North Water Transfer Project, is partly in place and still growing, with the aim ultimately of moving 45 billion cubic meters of water every year. Already, most of Beijing's drinking water is supplied by the project. But while water scarcity in the north is a powerful motivator, the water transfer project raises a number of questions. Not least whether it's the best way of balancing China's water needs. How efficient is the country's water governance? And with so many competing and changing demands, who has the rights to the resource? And what are the human and environmental consequences of this ambitious engineering project? We're joined by two geographers, Dr. Sarah Rogers, research fellow in the University of Melbourne's Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies, who specialises in social and environmental change in rural China, and by Dr. Min Jiang, senior research fellow in the university's School of Geography, where she looks at water governance and climate change adaptation. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thank Ali. You, Ali. Let's start, if we can, by drawing a picture of the South-North Water Transfer Project. Min, can you give us a sense of the sheer scale of this? 
So the project is considered to be the world's largest interbasin water transfer project in terms of the volume of water it diverts, as you already said, 45 billion cubic meters a year, and also in terms of the distance of the diversion. So it's more than 1,100 kilometers distance to transfer the water from the south to the north. And Sarah, at least originally, there were three different routes. There's a west and east and a middle That's right. So the western route has not come to fruition and likely won't. Um, The middle and the eastern route have been operating for a number of years now, and they're effectively two separate systems. The middle route, the water is drawn from the Danjiangko Reservoir in central China. It's effectively a tributary of the Yangtze, of the Changjiang, and it flows north to Beijing and Tianjin. The eastern route draws on the old Grand Canal and a series of lakes along the way and reservoirs, and the water flows up through Jiangsu and to Shandong. And how many provinces does it pass through on its way north? I mean, it's uh, I suppose it's <laughs> that also gives a sense of the scale of it too. That's right. So the middle route flows through uh, Henan, Henan Hebei, Hebei yep, towards, Tianjin and Beijing. Yep, and the eastern route originates in Jiangsu, flows the length of Jiangsu and then flows through Shandong. What about the energy intensity of this, moving this amount of water? Do both the middle and the eastern routes, are are they pumped? Is it gravity? How does it actually work? So the middle route is gravity fed, so it flows downstream, downwards towards Beijing and Tianjin. The eastern route is the interesting one. So the eastern route goes through a series of pumping stations, which have to pump the water up metres and metres towards its final destination. So we've, with colleagues, done some modelling on this and the eastern route is not only very energy intensive, it emits a lot of carbon because of the sources of energy in coastal China. What is the main source of energy for this? Coal. That also raises the issue of ongoing cost. So you've built this very expensive project, but the eastern route in particular requires this constant payment. You have to keep the thing running. It's an ongoing expense. And that also feeds into the the environmental benefit equation as well. Absolutely. So if you want to assess the sustainability of the south-north water transfer, you have to think not just in terms of water, but also in terms of the energy consumed and the carbon emissions that are part of that. And this, Min, this project, it really goes back to the 50s, doesn't it? It was uh, Mao's idea originally. It was. When he was visiting the Yellow River in 1952, he said that we have quite abundant water resources in the south. If it's possible, it's okay to transfer some to the north. Yeah, yeah. she said borrowed. Said borrowed. borrowed. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> which is interesting because it's not mm. borrowed water because obviously it's not going to go back anytime soon. No, it's not. Yeah. The, the scarcity of water, as we said in the introduction to this, that scarcity is a very powerful motivator. But where does it come from, Sarah? Is it is it a natural scarcity? Is it a, a pollution? Is it a lack of conservation? Has it always been that way? I mean, certainly North China is more arid than the South, but its water availability issues are compounded by water pollution of surface water and groundwater. So it's a question of pollution management as well as natural availability. And then it's also a question of demand. So North China has been very intensive uh, in terms of agricultural development and industrial development. So a lot of China's water gets used in the North when actually the South has more available supply Given that basic scenario, how is the project viewed in China, Min? Is it, you know, there there is a necessity here, there's a real motivator? 
Well, this sort of urgency has been justified from many respects. I think that was between late 1990s up to the turn of the 21st century, the North experienced seven consecutive years of drought. And then we had this really major drought in 2000, and we call it the Dragon Drought Year. So that was the context when the project became more like a you know, policy agenda. You know, we've been talking about this for a while, but we had no financial capacity to mobilize it. But now we have to do it. But it also is a part of China's longstanding tradition of relying on engineering solutions to conquer nature, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's very much an official view. How is it considered by people? I think that the public would have more generally a supportive attitude towards that, uh, especially for older generations. They thought, oh, that is a project that would benefit the country, would benefit the development of the country and the people. But obviously, there are a lot of negative environmental social impacts, especially for the region that the water is transferred from. Depends on your perspective, I suppose. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So I think the discourse in the source regions of the middle route, there's a quite powerful discourse of sacrifice. But that's changed in recent years to sort of looking at this as part of China's ecological civilization building and looking at the south-north water transfer sacrifices more as an opportunity for green development and cleaning up the environment in these source regions. What impact is it having in those source regions? I mean, it's a relatively finite resource. If you remove it, what, what happens to industry? What happens to villages? What happens to the flow of the river? Yeah, I mean, there's many impacts. So the environmental impacts are more obvious on the downstream reaches of the Han River, and then there are possibly going to be impacts on places as far away as Shanghai as well. But the main impacts, I think, in the source region are economic and social. So you've had this huge impetus to clean up the water, to clean up the catchment, which has meant that a lot of industries have been closed down, a lot of people have been resettled, and local governments are under enormous pressure to meet strict water quality targets. So there's a very big transformation going on in the source region of the middle route. That impetus to clean up, is that only because the water's going north? Would it be there without this project? Well, that's an interesting question. (laughs) So the main discourse around this is sending a river of clean water north. So not just sending lots of water, but sending clean and clear, high-quality water. So I think partly this is about who is benefiting, that Beijing is a powerful place and the water needs to be of sufficient quality. But at the same time, there are all these longer-term benefits in cleaning up this area and controlling flows of pollution. So I think it's sort of both. Does that lead to resentment that there is, on the one hand, the positive of cleaning up, but on the other, the negative of losing industry and of displacing people and reducing flows, as you said, as far north as Shanghai could be impacted? Certainly. How much you can actually express that resentment is another question. But there are also benefits because the central government has tried to balance some of these impacts. Beijing and Tianjin as water receiving areas are actually sending huge flows of capital into the source regions to try and help them improve the water quality. Local government officials certainly have these really strict targets and they've lost a lot of local sources of revenue, but they're also benefiting in terms of this flow of money. 
And if we look at the project as an entirety, how far along are we? If, if we accept that the third route, the western route, probably won't happen, are we 80% complete for the other two or is it somewhat less than that? So the phase one has completed. We do have different stages of the targets for the project to deliver the amount of water uh, from the south to the north. So the middle route commenced construction in 2002 and started in operation in 2013 after the 11 years of construction. And the eastern route commenced construction in 2003 and started in operation in 2014. So we can say that the um, project for these two routes are operating now. But the amount of water that is delivered at the moment is far from what is designed in the original plan. And, and why is that? There are many reasons. One is that the main tunnel is completed, but there are lots of supporting links and diversion channels that are required to be put in place in different receiving regions. And that needs a lot of time to be put in place. Sarah, yeah, I was going to say, what's the politics of that? Is it simply that these things take a lot of time and that this project is gradually unfolding? Or is it that there are bottlenecks or hindrances along the way? So Min raised this issue of the extra construction that local governments need to do to actually draw water off the main canal. And then the other issue was price. So this water is much more expensive than water drawn from other sources. So there's effectively two disincentives for local governments to use this water. One is that they have to pay more for the water itself and the other is that they have to pay more to build all this supporting infrastructure. In a context where it's not a particularly dry period in North China, local governments are deciding to just use other sources. But come another drought, that could change. That could change, yeah, and the capacity is there to really scale that up if they need that water in the future. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by China geographers and water watchers, Dr Min Jiang of the University of Melbourne School of Geography and Dr Sarah Rogers from the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies at Asia Institute. If we look at this massive project, to what extent are there alternatives that, uh, you know, could have meant that it wasn't needed. I'm, I'm thinking of things like focusing on changing the mix of industry, more desalination plants, better education, better governance, better storage, all those sorts of things, cleaning up the water resource. Sarah, is this project the best way of addressing the concerns? Uh, no, it's a very expensive way of addressing water scarcity in North China. It's a method that has such far-reaching impacts on people's lives in many different parts of China. The alternatives might include rainwater collection in the north, more efficient water use, particularly in agriculture and industrial users as well, higher prices for water so that there's more incentive to use water better, uh, cleaning up surface water pollution, groundwater pollution, desalination, but desalination is also very expensive. So there's a whole range of possibilities so, Min, why was this the go-to uh, solution? And you talked earlier about the traditional way of China going for big engineering projects to resolve problems. Um, there are definitely a range of different policy alternatives to solving water 
shortages, for example, more market-based mechanisms such as uh, water pricing and particularly water markets and water trading that has been quite successful in Australia, for example. And China has been experimenting this kind of market-based mechanisms from 2000. So you've now starting to get a focus on other mechanisms like the market-based mechanism, and we can look at the, the water rights issue in a minute. But where's the balance between big engineering project on one hand and other mechanisms on the other? There is a quite interesting new policy discourse at the moment uh, that Chinese government tends to use, which is pushing with two hands. So one hand is government, the other is market. I think it is a vision that China probably aims to go towards, but the reality is the engineering supply side, state-run hydraulic infrastructure is the dominant hand is the hand that China is more comfortable and skilled to use. Do you agree with that, Sarah? Yeah, I do. But I think we should also note the recent shift to very strict water pollution control in China and the sort of raft of measures that have been introduced to really try to clean up surface water. It's not an either or. It's not big engineering or market or something else. All of these things are going on at the same time in China. On paper, China has got enormous regulations and policies designed for better water management. You know, as I say, in in theory, there is a lot being done. Is that reflected in practice? To some degree. But uh, there is a big gap between the policy in paper and what is happening in practice. Yeah. So, for instance, in the source region of the Middle Route, so around the Dandanko Reservoir, Local officials have to meet these really strict targets and have to make sure they're cleaning up the water. But they've also got to balance all of these local interests, these local industrial interests, and manage the risk of social unrest if they push too hard for these sorts of targets. They're in a really difficult position. Tell us about the politics of this project. Is it more about politics than water? It's a deeply political project from my understanding, It was always talked about in terms of benefiting North China as a whole and taking some of the pressure off farmers as well. The water's not used for agriculture. It's used for Beijing and Tianjin drinking water and also for environmental flows in those cities to sort of beautify those cities. In my mind, because of who is benefiting from this water, it it is deeply political. Min, do you agree with Sarah about the the political nature of this project? Uh, Yes, I do agree. Um, Beijing is obviously the paramount priority as the biggest benefiting city from the project. And uh, if you look at more broadly, China has been using all these different mega infrastructure projects to demonstrate to the world its ability to build. So I guess similar to the Three Gorges Dam, the South-North project is also one of the symbolic icons of China to demonstrate its national pride. National pride and national power? Both, pride and power. Power, you know, is part of the pride. I mean, you talk about the pushing with two hands. If we can just look at the, not the engineering, but the market side a little bit more. Tell us about efforts to create national water rights and and where they're up to and what they actually mean. Who owns this resource? Yes, so the Chinese government initiated large-scale water reform named Building a Water-Saving Society from the turn of the 21st century when the Chinese government started reflecting on 
the effectiveness of the traditional approach to water management. And the recognition was that relying on engineering alone was not working. And that was when this water reform started based on the theory of water rights. Uh, so the national water rights system included a few different parts of water rights, including the ownership of water resources, of course, is um, owned publicly on behalf of the people uh, by the government. But then water rights can be established from the water resources ownership to water users who can on the usual factory water rights. So is that up to the local government to say, okay, factory number one over there, you have the rights to this amount of water over this period of time and farmer three over there, you have the rights to this amount of water? Is that how it works? At the local level, you can say that, but at the national level, because major river basins, you know, cross provinces, that is the initial level of planning water resources first at the national level, just to allocate water availability across different provinces, for example, in a river basin, and then the local governments would have their share of water supply from a certain river basin, and then within their administrative boundary, they can allocate. So that gives a taste of how complex the whole process is, because I understand that the first water trade in China actually happened two decades ago, but how sophisticated is the trading system today? Uh, still very early stage in its infancy, we can say that. And in many local areas, there are still lots of experiments going on. And uh, the most active area that is having the majority of water trades taking place is in the Mongolia and Ningxia in the Yellow River Basin, where the water rights are relatively more defined, more specified. How important is it that China does establish a water trading system? How how much of an impact would it have? The original idea of uh, using water markets and uh, market-oriented mechanisms is to increase water use efficiency, to encourage water conservation. Because if you keep providing more water supplies, then people have no sense of scarcity, no sense of shortage, and therefore there's no incentive to conserve water. So the theory of water markets is to redirect limited water resources to more economically productive values of use. In practice, there are empirical evidences, especially from Australia, for example, that support with a functioning water market, this kind of target can be achieved. So, yes, in theory and in practice, there's evidence to support that. Sarah, Min mentioned there this lack of incentive if you continue to provide significant supply. Is that a negative of this water transfer project, that if there is always water availability in cities like Beijing and Tianjin, that you lose that incentive to conserve? Yeah, when coupled with fairly low water prices, that's certainly an issue. Do you consider that a negative of this project? The reality about the project at the moment is there is more supply now rather than lack of supply to meet the demand. So take Henan province as an example. Uh, Henan has a share of 3.69 billion cubic metres of water from the South North Water Transfer Project. But at the moment, the province only uses 1.7 billion cubic metres, which means there is a potential supply for water users to use more. 
Mm. You know, one a, point, a lot more. Yes. yes. And so uh, is that necessarily a good thing? Not really. Not necessarily. And that's probably a negative about the project. When the project was being mobilized between 2000 and 2002, that was actually at the same time when the idea of water rights emerged. Because in the past, how a water infrastructure project was managed didn't encourage water conservation because local governments, they just submit their water use plans. And they get ticked off. Yes. And that was uh, how things worked in the past. But then if you use water rights theory, say, to obtain your water right, you need to contribute to the financial investment that is required for the project. And then the local government would have to think how much water you know, the region needs. And then based on more scientific calculation and uh, prediction, they come up with their water plans. That's, it's a fundamental tension with this entire project. Yes. Yeah, so there is certainly the possibility that this increased supply will drive more urbanisation, industrial development in North China than would have been the case. And whether that's sustainable in the long run, so whether we need a new mega city in North China like Xiong'an or whether smaller cities along the route actually need to develop industry, water-intensive industry, it's not particularly sustainable. (laughs) And we talked earlier about how, I mean, the whole thing is because there is this scarcity of water in the north. Is there a water crisis in the north, Sarah? Is the whole premise on which this is based, yes, water scarcity, but is it to the point where you need a project as large as this, the world's largest water transfer? I think it depends where you're talking about in North China and in what time period. So, yes, possibly there's still a water crisis in parts of Shanxi and other provinces like that. Perhaps there was a water crisis in a city like Beijing in the past. Right now, I think if you look at Beijing and you look at the amount of water that's going into environmental flows and the amount of water that's being supplied by recycled water, it doesn't look to me like a city in crisis. Is this project, though, actually helping some of those issues, helping to fix some of the problems that Beijing had, taking the pressure off? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Beijing's water consumption is a quarter delivered by the South-North Water Transfer, a quarter by recycled water, and and nearly a half is still groundwater use. But most of the drinking water is from this project, isn't it? Yes, Mm. definitely. So 70% of Beijing's drinking water is from diverted water. To finish off at this stage, can we call this project a success or not? Can we weigh the the benefits and the negatives or is it simply too early to assess what its role is going to be longer term? Personally, I still believe the decision to construct this project was made before all aspects of potential impacts this project would bring. So from that respect, I would think, okay, now the project is in place. The question for the Chinese government is how to use it more effectively to bring more positive impacts economically, socially and environmentally. So now you've got it, you may as well utilise it. Yeah, in a better way, at least better than what is being utilised at the moment. And what would that take, do you think? Better water governance, that's for sure. Sarah? Uh, I think the real test will be the changing climate in North China. At the moment, availability of water is not such an issue. But if we do see a really severe drought, like what happened in 97, 98 uh, and 2000 again in China, 
I think that will be the real test as to whether uh, the South North Water Transfer will take some of the stress off North China. And whether it can be a sufficient impetus for some of those provinces along the way to also use it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But the high price of this water is still an ongoing issue, I think. Well, it's certainly a very impressive engineering project. (laughs) You can't deny it that. Thank you very much, both of you, for your time. Thanks. Thank you, Ali. Our guests have been China water geographers, Dr Sarah Rogers of the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies at Asia Institute and Dr Min Jiang of the University of Melbourne's School of Geography. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 9th of August 2018. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.